0: Good morning, church. Um, Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the current of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was a son of God. This is the word of the Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some have called this the most important and the most terrifying question in all of the Bible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So right off the bat, it begs us to ask, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying, but more than that, I think it's important for us to also ask not just the meaning of what Jesus is saying here, but what is it intended to do? Why does Jesus cry out as he's being crucified? Why say anything at all? He hasn't spoken much up to this point when you read the gospel accounts. So what is this intended for? As with any cry, in many ways, you could say it's, it's a call to action. Because this isn't Jesus simply just being emotional, right? The way you would be when you cry out uh, during a sports game. Or when you cry out when it's home project time. Maybe that's just me, right? But my family pretty much knows, right? Like my daughter even said during the Super Bowl, like, oh, I forgot. This is what happens when I watch with you is you scream a lot, right? <laughs> Or whenever I break out the drill and the hammer, the kids kind of know, like, time to fade into the background. Dad's going to be screaming soon. This is more than just a cry of emotion, though that's definitely there. It's, it's in many ways a, a call to action. That when you cry out with a, a loud voice like this, with particular things to say, you're wanting to start something, maybe. Or you're wanting to stop something, right? A, see a child run in to the road, you would say, right, you would cry out to stop them. Or if they're in the road, just not moving, you would cry out to move them. So what is this intended to do? Well, in our scripture reading, we ended with this verse, that the centurion who stood facing him saw that this way he breathed his last and he said, truly this man was the son of God. And here we've come to the climax in our study in the book of Mark. We've reached the height because the Gospel of Mark opens with the verse one that says, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And through the entirety of the book, no human being has recognized Jesus as the Son of God until this moment. And so you see this cry or as you'll see, the two cries are actually to draw us in. There's so many details that the evangelist Mark could have written to explain to us what's happening in Jesus's crucifixion, right? Here we actually only get one of the seven phrases we hear uttered by Jesus from the cross. And so what is it that Mark wants us to be drawn in to see? What's the the action he wants us to call, he wants to call us to? Ultimately, this is the very heart of Christianity. This being drawn in. Because after all, the the entire narrative of the Bible, you could simply say, is, is how is God going to fulfill the promise that started in the Garden of Eden, where we would be his people? and he would be our God. Clearly, that was lost when humanity turned away from God to live their own ways. And yet, then you read the entirety of the Old Testament, and that promise repeats itself over and over and over again. I will be your God, you will be my people. You will be my people, I shall be your God. And the answer is, how's that gonna happen? How is that gonna happen? And all of the scriptures point to Well, there would be a Messiah. And the Messiah would be the Son of God, which in many ways is just to say God himself would come and somehow keep that promise. And here, Mark wants to draw us in to recognize how that promise works in our lives, how God really can be our God and how we can be his people. So to start us off this morning, I'll ask, how is your relationship with God going, right? If, if you're a Christian this morning, how's, how's that working out for you? And maybe in your mind, you're running through like, okay, did I? how many quiet times did I have today? Or did I, maybe you're thinking maybe of all the list of things that you need to do, or you're thinking about maybe the things you learned. It could be a whole host of things that run through your mind. But you see, Jesus wants to make sure that Wherever you feel like it's, it's going for you, however you feel like it's working out, you can really be drawn in to knowing that God is your God and you can be his people. And so those two things are actually drawn to us from the two cries that we see in Jesus. Maybe it was, it was easy to miss the second one because the first one stands out so much. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we see just before the centurion and the temple of the curtain being torn, it says, Jesus cry, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna look at what is the meaning of these two cries? What do they mean and how do they draw us in to experience God as our God and us as his people? How can we confidently know that that's really the case for us? How can we, maybe even as you're thinking, do better in walking and following Jesus? So we'll look at each of those two cries, and then we'll look at the confession of the centurion, which really gives us an example of how these two cries that are meant to draw us in, what does that look like to be actually drawn in to God? So... The first cry, the second cry, and then the confession. Those will be our headings. So what is the meaning of this first cry? How does that draw us in? There's a couple of hypotheses that people have put forward, a couple of theories. And the first one is what these people hear in the story thought. It says that at the sixth hour, which would have been noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It would have been about 3 p.m. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's how some of the bystanders interpreted that. And some bystanders heard it, and they said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, and saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So right away, you're like, What's... What's this deal with Elijah, and what's up with the sour wine, and what's going on here? Well, there was this, this tradition, right? That ultimately, a righteous person who would be suffering at the end of their lives could be saved by Elijah. Because Elijah is one of two people in the Bible who never actually really died, right? You can go look up the second one later. So, God took Elijah. It says, up in the chariots of fire, right? And so there was this tradition, this, this, um, this idea that Elijah would come and save you. And so in their kind of worldview, their theory of the case was like, okay, Eli, Eli, kind of sounds like he's calling for Elijah. So they're mishearing him, maybe. And they want to see, all right, maybe this guy is righteous after all. Maybe he will do that. So this sour wine is really just common, cheap wine that the soldiers would have drank. And so part of it is they're going to give him something to to help sustain him, to quench his thirst, and see whether or not can Jesus actually pull off the one last miracle. Now, of course, we know that he wasn't calling for Elijah. He was calling out to God. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So in quoting Psalm 22, it's pretty dire. And so some people want to say, oh, no, 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 no. This is just just symbolic of Jesus. Like Jesus is feeling really lonely, and he's just like, kind of feeling forsaken, but I mean, God hasn't actually forsaken him. This is just symbolic. And, and you know, I mean, if you, if you read on, like it says, he's still saying, my God, and Psalm 22 kind of ends with victory of how God won't forsake him. And so that's where this is heading. Another view is that, well... This is a victory cry. Excuse me, this is not just a a victory cry, a symbol of how he's going to overcome this pain, this torture, this loneliness. But ultimately, Jesus is finally cracked. This is it. Because after all, this is the one time when Jesus prays and he doesn't call God Father. So even though he's crying out to my God, there's a separation that's being happened. And Jesus is ultimately disappointed. And there's more and more theories that we can go on. And so how are we to know exactly what's happening? Well, each of these cries, the my God, my God, and the loud cry, they're accompanied by, you could say, a sign. Or there's something else that's going on that can help us understand what is Jesus doing and how does these cries intended to actually draw us in. And the first sign that accompanies This cry is darkness. Now, this isn't a darkness that could be explained by a sandstorm or a darkness that would be explained by an eclipse, because it's not the season for sandstorms; it's the rainy season, and it's not the season for an eclipse. And I, because Passover is at full moon, and on top of that, an eclipse doesn't last three hours of darkness. Should you imagine how eerie? And weird that would feel. In the middle of the day, when the sun should be at its highest, it's darkest. You see, that's because darkness throughout the scriptures represents the cursing, the anger, the wrath of God. It becomes clear in stories that are commonly read during this season, right, leading up to Easter, where you read about the Exodus. And in the Exodus, what do we see is God brings these plagues on Egypt and ultimately the last plague of darkness where all of creation begins to unravel and even life itself and the firstborn themselves die. And darkness sets in. And it's not just a physical darkness, but it's a spiritual, emotional darkness that hangs heavy and disorients because all of creation itself is being disoriented and unraveling. This is where Amos in chapter eight would say that the sun would go down at noon on this day. And it was Jesus himself that over and over when he would talk about those who turned away from God, who didn't want to believe in Jesus, he would say that they would find themselves in utter darkness, which ultimately is they would forsake the light of God. And so hell, Right? It wasn't always this picture of fire, right, and burning, but so often it's referred to as darkness. A coldness. And who is this darkness falling upon? Is it falling upon the traitor who's betrayed Judas? Is it falling upon the disciples who abandoned Jesus? Is it falling upon the soldiers or the tribunal that was rigged? This darkness falls on Jesus. The cursing of God, the wrath of God, all the things that we've sung about this morning, we see falling on Jesus. Now think about that cursing. So, you know, you could see in our worship program, our our service ends with a blessing. And many times the blessing might go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Here we see, may the Lord curse you and reject you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. But in this case, we see the Lord turning his face away and not his grace, but his wrath falling upon Jesus. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Peace. Again, the face of God does not turn towards Jesus with peace. It turns away from Jesus and his wrath is poured out. But not only that, so in this darkness, right? Imagine weird, eerie darkness, which just highlights the fact that you hear this cry all the more. Maybe there's some murmuring. Maybe there's some talking. Maybe there's you, you're jeering. But then there's this This cry that everyone kind of seems to hear, but no one really caught exactly what he was saying, and so they misinterpret it. But they heard a cry. Why a loud cry? Why not silently confessing, God, why have you forsaken me? Clearly, Jesus is in agony, and that's what this first cry means is that there is an infinite agony that has been poured on Jesus. But why? Let us know that. Why the loud cry to draw us in? See, all this time in Jesus's life, he's been bearing our humanity, right? He's taken on flesh. He's become God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. All this time, he's been living in a sort of sorrow. That's why he's called a man of sorrows throughout the scriptures, And the reason for that is, is because Jesus knew two things. He knew what life was supposed to be like, right? Perfectly with God. God is his God and him is God's people. He knew what it was like to have that intimate relationship with God. And of course, he knows that even to an infinite degree because he is the son of God, but then he also knows what it's like to live our lives. And so he knows the distance between the two. He knows what it's like to live this life in a way that pales in comparison to what it was intended for. Right, have you, have you ever experienced this? Where, you know, you've had steak and then you've had steak? like, elementally, on an atomic level, it's the same thing, same ingredients, right? But, you know, there's steak, and then there's steak, right? And woe to the man, right, who early in his marriage says, you know, this isn't the way my mom used to make it, right? And he voices the, the gap between what it's supposed to be and how he's experiencing it now. Yes, woe to that man. But you see, Jesus, Jesus knows all of life, what it was supposed to be, and yet lives in this gap. So what got him through it? What, what helps him get through it to remember that? Well, he said over and over again, I live to do my Father's will. My bread is to do my Father's will. The Father and I are one. As the Father's in me, I am in him, right? He does everything with the Father. That's what got him through the gap between what life was supposed to be like and the experience that we all live in, is he got through it because of his father. But here now we see in this loud cry, for the first time, Jesus having to go through life without his father. Experiencing the full separation and the full weight of our sin, the full weight of darkness in his life. You ever seen that, the couple, you know, who, they do everything together. And as they go into old age, one of them passes on before the other. And you just wonder, how is the other one going to make it? They did everything together. How is the other one going to survive? You see, that's just, just the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus would have experienced with his father that got him through it. But it's important to know that Jesus, in experiencing this separation from God, isn't merely just a third party who steps onto the altar as a sacrifice for sin so that the judgment of God could be appeased. They may be like, wait a second, that sounds like Christianity to me. What do you mean it's not just that? All right, well, bear with me. It's certainly not less than that, but it's much more than that. Because God isn't just happy to judge anyone who's willing to step in to this line so that sins could be forgiven. He's not just desperate or happy to punish someone, even if they're innocent. You see, it's, it's actually God himself stepping in to intercept the very judgment that should be due to us that God enters into the depths of our darkness. And so it's not just some sinless, innocent third party who steps in to take God's judgment. It's God himself who steps in. Hence why it's so important to understand Jesus as the son of God, that God offers himself to God. And you have to see everything in these last two chapters has been leading up to this. It's uh, Dick Lucas, actually an old Anglican minister, who outlines how this plays out. That first, Jesus suffers at the hands of his own friends. Judas, who betrays him, the apostles who abandon him. And then Jesus suffers at the hands of his enemies, right? With the soldiers and the tribunal and the Pharisees and religious leaders. But you see here in this passage, we see Jesus suffering at the hands of his father. And so, what is this cry? Well, it is the cry of infinite agony. But ultimately, it's meant to draw us in. Because here's what the book of Hebrews says about this very thing it says, Thence we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That's what this cry is for, is so that you can have the confidence to draw near to God. So that you can know that in your deepest darkness, God has not abandoned you because God abandoned Jesus. And in that, you can still draw near. God has not forsaken you, he will not forsake you because God forsook Jesus. And that's why we get to draw near. So that's the first cry, the cry of infinite agony to give us the confidence that we can draw near to God in our own darkness. What's the second cry? What does the second cry mean, and how does that cry draw us in? Now, here's where it gets a bit tricky, because you're probably wondering the same thing that I was wondering all week, which is... What did Jesus say here? Now, it may be Jesus didn't say anything. Honestly, this could be one of those emotional, kind of guttural, just cries. It could be what John records for us in his gospel in chapter 19, verse 30. That when Jesus received the sour wine, which is what we see set up here, they gave him this wine. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There could be what Jesus said in Luke 23. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And have he said this, he breathed his last. So what is this next cry? Because it it obviously has an emotional, intellectual, a, a epiphany of an impact on the centurion who watches this. So what is this cry? Well, just like we have the darkness to help us interpret that first cry. In this instance, we have the curtain to help us interpret the second cry. Because notice what happens right afterwards in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Think about that. Everything is outside the temple. We're on this, this, this mountain or this hill called Golgotha, which just means skull, which is where we get even the word Calvary, because Cal is just Cal, so... That's the Latin for skull, right? So Calvary, Golgotha, same, the hill of Calvary, hill of Golgotha, same thing, outside the city, right? Because as Pastor Jeff explained last week, Jesus is receiving the curse of God. He has to be outside the city. He is cast out, okay? But then we're taken from outside the city. The camera kind of zooms in to what's happening inside this temple. And not just at any point inside the temple. It takes us back into the city, inside the innermost part of the temple. You see, because the temple was the brick and mortar successor to the tabernacle given to Moses. And the tabernacle was this tent where God's presence that led them out of Egypt would dwell amidst God's people. The presence that was on the mountain with God, how would it go with the people? Well, it would be in the tabernacle Well, then when the kingdom's set up and they settle in the promised land in Jerusalem, how is God going to be with the people? Well, they would construct the temple. And the temple, in its innermost part, had these two rooms. This would be 15 centuries after Moses, right? They construct this temple that in the heart of it has the holy place and the most holy place. And what this is designed to do, as all great temples are designed to do, is they're to teach you, to tell you a story. This is why when you go into, you know, kind of older church buildings, they're designed in certain ways, many of them designed in the shape of a cross, or they have uh, icons or artifacts or stained glass windows to tell a story, to communicate about the things that we believe so that over and over again, we're reliving the story of God that can supersede our own narratives that we write for ourselves well the temple then of course constructs this place where its heaven and earth represented together but it's separated by this giant thick curtain it's be about 60 feet tall 30 feet wide and in that it separates the holy of holies representing heaven from the holy place just representing earth and it was on, and it was woven into it Cherubim. Now, maybe you hear Cherubim or Cherubim or whoever, maybe you pronounce it, but this, this idea of these angels woven into it, and maybe you think the Hallmark cute little baby angels who are naked flying around. No, these are the angels that harken back to the Garden of Eden that were set there with flaming swords to keep Adam and Eve from having access to the Tree of Life. And they are set in this curtain which says, You cannot come through here unless you pass under the sword. And so it would only be on one day a year, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where the high priest of Israel would carry a blood sacrifice in and make intercession for God's people. And so of course you can see the symbolism that when Jesus gives this final cry, the curtain is torn, not from bottom to top, but from the top to bottom, that Jesus has finally and fully accomplished, as we sung, once for all, the perfect sacrifice is actually made. No more sacrifices need to be made after Jesus's, because we now have access to God. He really can be our God, and we can be his people. And we're invited to draw near in that as the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed of pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, you hear that same language, let us with confidence draw near. And why do we draw near? Are we confident in ourselves? No, as Hebrews 4 said, we're confident in our high priest the one who entered in to take on the wrath of God. Why are we confident, as Hebrews 10 would say, that high priest was also our great sacrifice, the one who gave himself? And who is this one? He is the son of God. He is God crying out to God. He is God taking God's wrath. He is God forsaken for us. And so if the first cry is a cry of infinite agony, This second cry, whether it's the cry of, it is finished, or whether it's just a scream, we know that it is a scream, not of agony, but of victory. That once for all, the perfect sacrifice really was made. And so with confidence, you can draw near. This is how the great promise throughout all of Scripture is made. How will God make the world right? How can we be God's people? And how can He be our God? You see, Him crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In infinite agony shows that God really does know what it's like to be us. He knows us completely. He can, he can sympathize with us. But more than that, the cry of victory shows that we really can be God's people. That he has opened up a way for us to have access to God. And so to close, let's just look briefly then at the end here. So as this curtain is torn in two, as God takes on God's wrath, as the darkness falls on Jesus, we are given a picture of what it looks like to be drawn in we're going to get a picture of what it looks like even to begin to draw near to God with confidence. And it's in the most unlikely of places, it's the centurion. See, because as I said, Mark 1 starts of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then it's not until chapter 15, verse 39, that someone finally realizes and admits Jesus is the Son of God. The whole narrative pushes to this point. Now, at Jesus' baptism, he's, God says, this is my son. When Jesus would cast out demons or enter into darkness, he would, the demons would say that Jesus is the son of God, but no human has done it. And yet there's something about Jesus' death that breaks through to the centurion who says, this is the son of God. Now, you have to understand that this This is radical. Because the phrase son of God would have been known to Roman soldiers. After all, right, Caesar would have been seen as one of the sons of the gods, right? That the heroes in, you know, of honor were sons of God. But you see, none of those Caesars or heroes were divine characters that died on a cross, so when he confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, he's not just saying, oh, this is some great hero, like all the other great heroes. Something broke through to this centurion. Because look, you gotta understand, like for this centurion, this is just Friday. Right? Like it's three o'clock on a Friday, and he's hoping his shift can end. You know who knows how many crucifixions he's got left for the day. This is his job. He's tired, he's ready for the weekend. He sees this all the time. People dying in front of him is nothing. Obviously, if we were to witness something like this, if you have witnessed a death, it stands out to you because hopefully it's not something you see frequently. But for him, it's like the people who work at the funeral home. Yeah, sorry for your loss. We'll get this out of here. We'll clean this up. We take care of you, but we do this all the time. And we got three more after this. So move it along. So, what was it that broke through? How was Jesus dying powerful for him? Now, ultimately, the answer is we're not sure. That it was something about the way he breathed his last that gets the centurion to abandon everything that he knows or thinks. And it broke through his own darkness so that he could see Jesus. Because notice, the other people, when they saw Jesus dying, they just kept it within their box and their worldview. Like, oh, he must be calling Elijah. Let's see if he really is righteous. Elijah will save him, because righteous people don't die on crosses. But in this centurion, he's saying who should say, sons of God, the kings don't die on crosses, but instead, he has everything flipped on his head. And you see, that's what it means to draw near. The centurion gives us a picture of how everything is flipped upside down in our lives. Everything is up for grabs because Jesus is the son of God. It changes our understanding of power. It changes our understanding of weakness, Everything that we've talked about through the Gospel of Mark up till now is only clearly seen and embraced when we realize Jesus really was the Son of God. And so in drawing near, we're invited to have this full assurance that when we suffer, it's not because God's abandoned us. It couldn't be farther from the truth. And so when we acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, when we draw near with that assurance of faith, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, we're having our own worldviews upended. We're not fitting Jesus into the box of good things happen to good people. Instead, we're recognizing if the greatest of them all experience suffering, I can experience the suffering too. You see, and as we draw near, the way we have everything upended is that when we recognize that this victory has given us access to this one God, we can know that we need not despair. We need not be stifled or held up by our own regrets. But we can confidently go to the one who has made it possible for us to draw near. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through this, you would help break through our own hard-heartedness. You would help us to overcome our own regrets. Father, that just as you did for the centurion, helping him to see and understand that truly this man was the son of God, that you would help us to have that same understanding, To grasp not just the depth of your suffering, but the finality of your victory. May that change us, we pray. Amen.